Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman. And guys, this is going to be a great episode. Um, one of my, I'm interviewing one of my favorite authors of all time. Has one of my favorite books that is changing lives daily. But guys, so I just want to say thank you. And I want to thank our sponsors. If you guys love coffee, and if you love veterans, and if you love female veterans, this young lady, uh, Carrie, has a product called Soldier Girl Coffee. It is all 100% veteran owned and operated. And they also came out with a brand new product that's CBD infused. So check out Soldier Girl Coffee. How are you doing, Miss Shauna? Hi, Richard. How are you? I am so blessed and honored to be able to hang out with you today. Um, I've been looking forward to this for months now. So what's going on? Well, at first, I almost looked behind my back to see who Miss Shauna was because I haven't heard that in many, many years uh, <laughs> since I was 10. Um, well, I, I, grew, I grew up in the South, so I still have that whole respect thing. Oh, okay. Yep, that is a, definitely a regional thing. I lived in the South for uh, graduate school, so... Um, I am actually on a deadline here to get the second edition of my book uh, turned in, but I definitely um, had planned with you today and um, wanted to see what you wanted to talk about. I, I want to talk about um, a little bit about your past and who you are, because who you are makes up you know the person that you are today and why you do the things that you do. And then I want to talk about your book. And then I want to find out why you made a second edition right after the first one came out. So I'm just, I'm just totally interested in everything you do. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Your support has been steady and long-term through the first edition and now the second edition. And I really appreciate it. Um, so as far as background. Yeah. Where are you from? And uh, what kind of little girl were you? Uh. <laughs> When I was a little girl, I, uh, I'm laughing because I, I actually just got my first pair of reading glasses and I'm actually really excited about that because I feel like I missed out on that. And, uh, those are coming in the mail to me. I feel like it's a rite of passage, but, um, when I was a, a little kid, I was uh, a California kid with bright blonde hair and grew up by the ocean. Uh, my dad was a uh, a surfer and an attorney, and uh, we had a great life there. And it was an unusual life because my mom and dad really believed in raising kids to not be spoiled or take things for granted. And so the way that he actually raised us was, in retrospect, very much military, even though he never served in the military. And I realized this when I was on a walk with my sister as an adult just a couple of years ago. And I asked her, um, why is it that I, I seem to connect so well with our, our war fighters? And she said, well, it's because we were raised like it was boot camp, like our childhood was like a boot camp experience. And it really clicked in that a lot of the things that I was exposed to when I was young and experiences that I had that my parents um, had me do have given me a sense of, of comfort with those who serve in the military. Now, um, being from California and, and being, you know, your father was a surfer. So I'm sure he had a kind of a laid back attitude in some things. 
but he was a hard driver in other things. Yeah, I don't know about laid back. Um, I think the surfing was probably to balance the intensity. Um, my dad is a trial lawyer that makes grown men cry. Okay. I never heard him described as, as laid back, but I, I think you're right that most surfers are. I think he really enjoys getting out there in the ocean, you know, at, um, <laughs> in the middle of the night at like 4.30 and 5 in the morning and uh, getting out and getting some waves for, for the physical exercise and the challenge of it. And plus, I also think, you know, like we can't, I always say this, that, you know, if we cannot give if we don't have anything. So if, if our cup is empty, we have nothing to give others. So we have to find something to do, something that we enjoyed. So, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people now, hundreds now. And one of the things that the top peak performers always tell me that when they were young, they were reading a lot. Mm-hmm. And I believe that readers are leaders. So was that you? Were you a, a reader? I definitely was. And that's a line in your book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. Thank you for reading it, by the way. It just hit number one on Amazon in um, in self-help. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, okay I know that, that was a big thing in your background as well, um, that you said you had read so many books, you know, as a kid and really kind of got an early start on that. Um, and, and even now, you know, I think during our last interaction, you said, if I remember correctly, that you read my book Warrior twice. Yep. Anytime so, I ever get a book, um, I always read it at least two or three times. That's why I never, I don't never like the, the books on phone or whatever, because I like to wrinkle the pages. I like to circle things, you know, yeah, I, I, with I you. Deep, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. The The next edition of my book is going to be published on the 11th of May. And so I'm like flipping through the literal pages and thinking, okay, that's the last time I'm going to ever correct that one. <laughs> yeah. Once that's done, I'm, I'm done. This is like my eighth round. And it's amazing with writing. You can work so hard to be totally squared away, you know, no single thread sticking out on the uniform, so to speak. And there's still stuff. I'm like, ah, I, I could have written that, that sentence a little bit better. Um, but at a certain point, you know, you have to um, just let it go and say, you know, that was, that was that piece of work. And, um, but yeah, I read a ton. So, you know, one of the things I was actually thinking earlier this week is one of the greatest blessings that you and I would agree on, I think, is that, we will never be lonely in life because for both of us, I'm sure there's always a five foot tall stack of books um, that needs to be read. And as long as that's true, I always have something that I can go to and really think about deeply or um, learn from. And I love that. Um, I've gotten some recent books from my friend uh, Grant Rogers. The Fire Within is a compilation of different stories from service members that I can't wait to read. Um, I got the newest novel from one of my favorite authors, Carl Marlantis, wrote a novel uh, recently that I can't wait to read. Um, and so there's just, yes, I'm a big, huge reader, and that's probably why I need reading glasses at this point. So now you you go you grow up in in California, correct? Yes. So tell me about going to Iowa State. Sure. Um, you know, I I can't pick on you too much cuz you know, I'm 
I'm I'm a big Miami fan, and you went to the University of Florida, so I can't pick on you too bad. But you know, I'm sure a girl from California had to feel weird going to a a, a state like Iowa. That must have been like a, a eye opener. It was a different cross cultural experience for me, um, for sure. It was. Um, really interesting to me to feel completely safe at any time of the day anywhere in that city because I'd grown up in LA right so you know you have a kind of sense of you got to be careful certain times of the day by yourself um, I, I just wrote an article um, about service dogs and the original draft of that article and this whole paragraph got scrapped <laughs> left on the editing floor but um, I wanted to start the article talking about my Doberman Pinscher. And it was my Doberman Pinscher that as a young kid really allowed me to have a freedom I never would have had at that age. So my parents would just say, oh, you want to go somewhere? You want to take a walk or whatever? Are you going to take the dog? And as long as I had my dog with me, um, she would protect me and nobody mess with me because she meant business. And so having that dog when I was a young girl really gave me freedom that I never had. And then I, um, I didn't have that freedom when I didn't have her with me. And I had this sense, like many people do in a city, where you have to kind of have a consciousness about where you are and if you're alone and, you know, if it's dark or whatever. Well, in Iowa, it was really interesting because I'm not going to say there's no crime, but it was like maybe somebody got a bike stolen in the, the town where, where I lived at that time. And so it was almost like the experience I would imagine of being in like 1950s, 1970s America, where there was like cherry pie festivals and football games and fireflies at night. And so I had a great experience um, enjoying that culture for a few years while I was in graduate school and then uh, moved down to Florida to uh, finish my doctoral degree. Yeah, I, I, I'll, let you, I'll let you slip with the University of Florida. Um... Because, you know, of course, Miami and Florida are big, are big rivals. So, but what, um, you know, because like I've had some friends and, I, and, I, and I've talked to some of, I've actually interviewed some of your friends. We have a lot of mutual friends. I yes. And, you know, like John and Annette um, and, you know, so a couple other doctors. And so when, you know, when you first go to college and you start thinking, okay, I, I want to be a, getting get into psychology what made you go into you know trying to help people that are struggling with uh, a ptsd or a uh, you know traumatic brain injuries depression what made you um, start moving into that direction yeah i actually didn't major in psychology and didn't plan on being a psychologist at all in college i was an english major and I thought I was going to go into law. So that was my plan A for my whole entire life, all through the time I graduated from Harvard. And I thought, I'm going to go into law. I'm going to take over my father's practice. And it just didn't feel like a fit for me, um, for what my strengths are, my interests are. So I started thinking, what is? And um, I'm a big fan of not sitting in an armchair and thinking about what you might like to do with your life but really getting out there and trying things and seeing if it's a fit. And I think we learn a lot in the doing. And so I went to a couple of places and asked to work for free for a couple months and said, look, if you, if you like my work um, and, and it's a good fit, then you can think about paying me then, you know, I'll need to 
actually, but I'll give you a couple of months for free. And so I started there um, at the Harvard Medical School working for a clinical psychology research program, looking at attachment and wasn't paid for the first couple months and then really enjoyed it and was able to negotiate, you know, a paid position after a couple months based on how it was going. Um, same thing with Mass General Hospital. I went over there and said, you know, I don't have any background. I had one class in psychology, but um, I can learn quickly and I'm interested in this. And, you know, would you take me on on trial basis? And if it works out well for both of us, then um, I'd love to be considered for one of your paid research assistant positions. And that's how it worked out. So I had a couple of those jobs and through that experience, I was really able to see what I liked and what I didn't like um, about working in psychology and, and what felt like a good fit for me. And then I studied like the Dickens to make up for all the classes I didn't take as an undergrad and tested um, on the graduate exam for psychology and, and, and did really well. Um, and so I was able to use those test scores and the two jobs that I had gotten as the justification for getting um, scholarships to go to graduate school in psychology. So I, I really didn't know that I was going to be in psychology and can't claim that I had a, this plan all along and, and this self-knowledge. I figured it out as I went, like a lot of people, I think, do. Now, you know, I talked to Dr. Larson last week, and she talked about post-traumatic growth instead of, um, you know, post-traumatic stress, you know, PTSD. So yeah. can you... Is that something that you also subscribe and believe to? Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, and, and that's a strong theme in my book, as you know, that I don't see warriors, uh, first responders as broken. Um, I think they have incredible strengths. And if we as healers can draw from their strengths and their warrior spirit, we can help them grow through trauma. And so the book is about how do we grow through trauma? And what happened was to answer your earlier question, why, why would I come out with a second edition right after coming out with the first one? Cause this was last year that I came out with the first edition mm -hmm. and there were a couple reasons, but the major reason was everything that I wrote about had such application for this unprecedented, really strange and traumatic year that we've all just been through. And I ended up doing 120 plus articles, media interviews. Um, I was just, I did um, one this morning for, for Minnesota's new country radio station um, about trauma and how we recover from trauma and secondary PTSD. So there's all these topics that are in the book and I wanted to help them be more applicable to people across the country. So I've added um, about 25% more content and uh, come out with a, a second edition that will help people really make application to their own lives and situations, whether they served in the military or not. You know, and I love that. And, you know, I'm a big friend, I'm a big fan of Michael Segrew. What an amazing individual. Um, and because, you know, a lot of people that number 22 gets thrown out a lot. Um, but you know, from what I found of people I've talked to, you know, the real number is upwards of 35 uh, first responders include 22 veterans and two active duty soldiers a day commit suicide, but with only 50% of the states actually reporting suicides. So the numbers are probably up where of 60 to 70 per day. 
so you know what are so are you noticing a down trend in it or an uptrend in suicides with first responders well okay so just to clarify the second edition of my book that's coming out on may 11th is a second edition of warrior the book i wrote about how we can support our veterans and first responders. And it has all of that additional content about how we can recover after this year of trauma, as well as new exercises for, for healers to build a deeper trust with patients. Okay. Um, then the book after that is the one I think you're, you're referring to here, where I am uh, about 120 pages into writing the next one, which is with my co-author, Michael Sugru. And it's going to be, um, I'm so excited about that book because the format that one takes is that I'm telling his story. So I interview him and then I try my best to kind of drop into his voice and share his story from a first person perspective. And for those unfamiliar, you know, Michael Sugru is, uh, he was an Air Force Raven. Um, do you know what a Raven is, Richard, by any chance? I can explain if, if not. Yes, you can explain a little bit better than I can. Okay. So an Air Force Raven is a very elite warrior that goes through this incredibly intensive selective training that's about 18 days long, you know, just um, extremely challenging. A lot of people wash out. And these are the men and women that guard um, these expensive airplanes and other, you know, expensive equipment that the military flies around and troops uh, when they move around. And they do a lot of work with um, setting up air bases in places that are potentially dangerous. Like he went on missions down to Colombia to very austere remote locations to look at the space and, and figure out how to defend a base if we were to put one there. And so they are um, just these elite warriors that are within the Air Force, but they have training that's a lot more like army soldiers or uh, rangers you know it's just a really kind of select group and every raven gets a number if they uh, go through the training and they're successfully uh, inducted as a raven each person gets a unique number and they never give that number out again so michael's is 1173 and um, after he was in the air force he became a police sergeant so he was a you know, police force leader and a sergeant. And he had a lot of experiences that were highly traumatic and that led him to his own time of real mental health struggle and a spiral of suicidality, which eventually, you know, he came through. So I, I write his story. And then at the end of each chapter, I share two or three pages of kind of my own reflections to kind of bring some professional insights into the picture about frontline trauma and how we can grow despite frontline trauma. You know, and I, and I've had Michael on the show and um, I think that's where we met. I think actually through Michael. So I, I love him as a brother, but you know, I, I was in the military. I did over 23 years. Um, and I found, I mean, like I said, I'm not a professional at all. I'm, I'm only a ninth grade dropout, but uh, I found that, when an adult acts out, it's usually because of something that happened between the ages of three and 13. Um, then you add military or war to the mix. And then you add alcohol to the mix. Some, sometimes, not all the time. Mm -hmm. And you have a perfect storm. And 
no, but there is no book out there to tell you how to get out of that perfect storm unless sometimes somebody's actually been in that perfect storm. So can you talk to us about why um, some veterans can go to war um, and not have, you know, their post-traumatic stress and stuff like that. And then some people will go through the same exact thing and come home and the war will still be going on within them. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's a very complicated equation, as you might imagine. And trauma is not trauma is not trauma. So the same trauma that influences one person in a negative way may not have the same impact on somebody else that was exposed to the same set of situations, um, depending on what their background is and how they're coming into it and a number of factors, um, you know, how personal it felt to them or um, where they were in the scene, you know, if there's a moral injury, like they felt, you know, helpless to do something that was uh, felt right, but they couldn't take action, you know, even the same group of people in a certain trauma might have different roles that they play in that trauma, a medic versus a, an infantryman or an infantrywoman, for example. Um, so it really varies. And what's really interesting is that, you know, to your point, Richard, some of the past trauma that people have been through inoculated them against further traumas. So they had past trauma in their early childhood. And when they came into the military, they had a kind of sense of, you know what, I've been through worse. And it actually buffered them from the full impact of trauma. Whereas other people, same situation, it sensitized them. It was trauma stacked on top of trauma. So I don't know that I have total clarity on that, but I do have a theory. And my theory, based on how people in my networks have handled the trauma of this year, is that if people have come through past traumas and they have been able to mentally uh, process and understand, digest that trauma, and feel a sense of mastery over the challenge that was presented to them, then it resources them to move forward with a sense of, you know what, I've been through this or worse, or I know what my strengths are, I know who my tribe is, and I will continue to persevere through this trauma. This too shall pass, and I have the ability to get through this. People, on the other hand, who understandably, you know, that trauma was sort of like a raw, jagged edge that was unresolved and, and ineffectively addressed, may feel a sense of helplessness and that traumas just kind of keep happening to them, like waves rolling in from the ocean where they just keep getting knocked down and they can't get back up. Um, so that's my theory. Um, it would take a lot of really expensive research to, to prove that out. Um, but that's what I seem to, to observe from the field. Okay. And I have another question to ask. So I, I got a lot of questions to ask. And, I, and once again, I want to thank you for coming in and hanging out with us today. I'm sure a lot of people are going to get, get some help that they're thinking about. Now I just, just released an episode with, with a friend of mine today and he dealt with a lot of survivor's guilt because mm -hmm. three of his guys in his squad either got killed or got, got shot. And he, you know, as when, when we're, uh, when we become non-commissioned officers, everybody that are, are under us, you know, we feel that we're, you know, like we're the mother hen, we're the father. 
and and we feel let down. And we when we got when we he got home, he got into looking at the bottom of a bottle. And uh, finally, he got he's thank God he's clean and sober now for a couple of years. But you know, talk to us about you know because you don't hear much about survivor's guilt or um, something you you mentioned before. I can't remember what it was. Um, Probably moral injury. Moral injury. You don't hear much about that. But when I talked talked to Doc last week, we talked about that a little bit. Can you expand upon that a little bit? Sure. You know, this is a big topic in my book, Warrior. And I think it really needs to be uh, differentiated from trauma. So moral injury and trauma, the kind of trauma we generally address in systems of care are not the same thing. And survival of guilt is is different entirely. It's more linked to, um, I would say, moral injury than trauma. But but essentially, the difference is that you know PTSD, post traumatic stress symptoms or disorder, it's an anxiety disorder primarily that involves uh, feeling unsafe in your own body, uh, feeling overrun by panic, irritability not sleeping well, being chronically overactivated and kind of filtering your world through a sense of threat. You're always sort of looking around for the perceived threat around you. And you don't feel that other people are safe or can be trusted. And you don't feel safe navigating the world around you. And that's different than moral injury. Uh, moral injury is when you feel somehow sort of morally contaminated or unworthy of belonging because of something that you've done or something that's happened to you or even just a situation um, that has occurred. And in my book, I talk about how we really need to better understand these concepts because the treatments for them are very different. And if we lump them all together, people are not going to get effective effective treatment for these different concerns. And so that's what I I really want to provide insight into. And so to your point about uh, survivor's guilt, just surviving when someone you love like family, a brother or sister in arms, has died, whether due to combat or suicide or training accident, will shift the entire moral framework of your life for many people going forward. So the way this can happen, to give an example, is if you are in the combat zone or there's a training accident and somebody dies that you love, then when you transition out of the military, often people struggle. It's a time of struggle for a lot of people. And you often will compare your own struggle to the ghost of the person you lost and say, that person never would have struggled this way. They were a true warrior. They would never have had a drinking problem. They never would have been unable to hold down a job. They never would have yelled at their kids like I just did. And so we compare our own struggles to the ghost of the person we lost And that is a different kind of trauma and requires a different kind of approach than just working on the anxiety symptoms of post-traumatic stress, which I have come to see as largely a biological injury that needs a biological treatment. Okay. um, I want to get right back to that, but you know, I got a traumatic brain injury. So if I don't say, if I don't say something, I'll never remember to get back to it. Um, You know, I found, you know, I've been in recovery now 30, 32 years. I've been clean and sober. And, and I, you know, I tell everybody that if you want to change your life in 30 days, there's three things you can do is one is to forgive people that have hurt you in the past. 
Um, the second step is to ask for forgiveness and to try to make amends to the people you've hurt. But I think the third thing, most of all, is to forgive yourself for some of the stuff that you went through or that you did in your past. Because a lot of people are holding on to that stuff and they're wondering why they can't, they're not getting ahead in life, but they're keep on, you know, carrying that rucksack and just throwing more bricks in the back of it. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, self-healing and also, you know, forgiving oneself for stuff that's happened in the past? Well, it is hard for all of us. And I think it's particularly hard for those with a strong warrior spirit. One of the things that the military does that's unique is that it's a radical re-socialization of your character and your values. So when you go into boot camp, whatever branch of service you're on, let's say you're a Marine and you put your feet on the, the yellow footprints, uh, you will change dramatically over that process of being trained up to be a Marine. And you will be instilled with a new set of values and a new identity. And as part of that warrior identity, you have a standard for behavior. Everything that you do after that is often in reference to the standard of behavior that is instilled in you. Now, some people, you know, reject that standard more than others. You know, some conform to it more than others. Echo, stop. Sorry, that's my Amazon Echo. And it's telling me I probably have to do something that I don't need to do today. Oh, gosh, that's how I keep myself on track. Um, but anyway, so if there's a standard, then it becomes hard to forgive yourself, especially hard because you tend to think things like, uh, you know, a real warrior wouldn't have done that. And so there's less people give themselves less slack, I think, than perhaps people who haven't been instilled with a warrior code. I mean, I know that there's a lot of civilians um, who might say, yeah, so I'm binge watching, you know, TV and, you know, I've gained 50 pounds this year because of COVID and like, that's what it is. But if you have a warrior spirit, there's often going to be a thought like, yeah, and I really, you know, have let myself go in terms of like physical conditioning standards. And I really need to like tighten that up and get that back because that's, you know, a warrior is always prepared. So to the degree that you have a standard, I think it becomes really hard sometimes to give yourself compassion and forgiveness. So that's a kind of unique challenge, I think, for our warfighters, but not insurmountable. You know, and I love that, you know, like I'm a big I'm a big fan of John McCaskill's and uh, Will Schneider. And, you know, I love when they talk about mindfulness. And I think um, talk to us about being mindful and the things that we do, because, you know, a lot of times we forget, like you just said, you know, we forget that the warrior that we once were, you know, like, I mean, and I've never, I've never talked about this on a podcast. So, um, you know, I was a tank commander in the military, you know, I was in charge of hundred million dollar vehicles and because I'm blind, almost blind. Mm -hmm. And my wife had to go, go to Florida to be with her father as, as he passed. I had to order Chinese food and I was scared. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I used to be, I used to be an M1 Abrams tank commander and here I am. I'm afraid to order Chinese food. You know, a lot of times I forget 
that warrior within, you know what I mean? So how do we're human? <laughs> yeah. So how do we get some of that, you know, how do we get some of that back? So yeah. Warrior mentality again. Well, first of all, I really like John McCaskill's work as well. I don't know the other person you mentioned. Yeah, uh, yeah. they have a podcast together. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> you can tell I've been kind of busy, probably too busy to probably take in as much content as I'd like to. Got that stack of books I need to read um, and podcasts I'd, I'd like to listen to. But I love the stuff that John's been putting out on LinkedIn and, and some of that uh, short videos and articles. I think um, to get to your question, it's really important for me to make this point here that we need to stop thinking of warriors as superhuman heroes because they are humans that do superhuman things by virtue of the bonds of trust and love that they hold with each other. And I also believe that, you know, some people have said you have this warrior within and that when you transition out of the military that you have to sort of kill that warrior and move on. I don't believe that. I absolutely think that the warrior within is something that in many people pre-existed their military time of service and that warriorship is not about conventional tactics in, in the combat zone. It's about something bigger than that. To me, a warrior is somebody who has a set of values that they're aware of and they're willing to do the hard things to protect those sacred values. They're willing to take on new challenges. So, you know, that is not a silly example you just gave because it, it absolutely makes sense. Okay, this is a different kind of challenge. It's a new challenge. You've got to order Chinese food. It's not something you've done in a long time. You feel vulnerable. Um, you know, vision is a, is a struggle right now in your life. And how do you do it? You know, so I think in this case, if you code that as, well, this is a challenge for me. How do I adapt? and overcome, given the situation that I have now, because I've been able to adapt and overcome, as I know you have, Richard, in the past with other things in your life, um, and, and really rise to this challenge. And you can summon that warrior spirit to kind of sit with the, the discomfort of, and I know John and Jason Van Camp do a lot about deliberate discomfort. So, um, they have talked about this. I've talked about this in, in past writing that I've done around the getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is part of the warriorship that moves us towards what we value with purpose um, regardless. So it's a new challenge, but you know the bottom line is courage in one domain does not automatically transfer to courage in another domain. But you can migrate strengths and qualities and values from one domain to take on challenges in other domains. And that's what I think people need to do when they transition from the military. You know, and I, and I truly love that. Now, I have another question because, you know, one of the things that I love about John is um, and, and, you know, Doc, when I talked to her last week, um, I, the, the people that are successful and the people are successful is a lot of it to do with the routines. And I found out that once I started getting back into a, a regular routine, my life and my business started getting better. So can you talk about, you know, because in the military, you know, we know we're up at five. We're doing PT. We have a child at a certain time where everything is, is regular. And then when you get out, you you know, you're sitting on the couch eating bonbons, you know, 
like you said, you're over, you know, pre-diabetic, 50 pounds heavier and depressed. And I think sometimes if people just start getting back into a routine, that might start changing their attitude and their mentality. What are your thoughts on routine? Yeah, one of the things I think we've learned, especially this year during the global pandemic, is that it's sometimes harder to do nothing at all than something really hard. And I know that um, I think you also did a, an interview with General Petraeus, perhaps yeah. mentioned yep. that. And so one of the things he said on a separate uh, recent meeting that I had with him, and John was part of that, actually, John McCaskill, is that being in the combat zone with a routine was easier than being in life with all of the different pulls on you in life after the military. And so I think routine is in some ways, it gives us a kind of focus and a clarity and is in some ways um, going to preserve our ability to really drive away at our goals in a way that is challenging in the modern world. With so many different things pulling at us and a lack of structure to help us, you know, move forward through our day. So I generally, you know, like routines, you heard my Amazon device go off in the middle of our interview because I have about 12 alarms every day set for myself. So I remember to stay on task and, you know, make it to my meetings on time. And, and so I am definitely a fan of routines. And that was how I was raised in a kind of quasi military sense as well to value that as part of um, being an effective person. Okay, so now I have another question. Um, so whenever you have to go, just let me know and we'll wrap up. So I don't because I know your, your time is very precious. Um, you know, one thing I talked about with John and his partner um, and also with Doc last week is sometimes we have to detox from our phones, uh, tablets, computers, you know, especially before going to bed. And sometimes when you're first thing when you wake up in the morning. So talk to us, because, you know, a lot, a lot of people don't realize is that when you sleep is when your body actually recovers and your mind actually recovers. So do you look at TV and watch your phone right before you go to bed? Or do you have some time that you detox away from phones and computers? Honestly, lately I've gotten into a bit of a habit of watching some TV before I go to bed and it doesn't seem to have that effect on me. I know that the research says that you shouldn't stimulate yourself before bed, but um, I don't know. It's, it's paired with like, Oh wow, this is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> I need to sleep. So I, I guess I'm a big fan of, um, you know, read the research, but also tune into your own body and your own experience. And don't just, you know, think that everything you read is going to apply to you. And, and as a case in point, you know, many of my patients that had attention deficit disorders would say, I get a paradoxical reaction to drinking caffeine, and it's actually relaxing, or, or helps me focus and calms me down. And that makes sense, right? Because when we give people stimulant medications, it's yep to calm them down. So I think, you know, rather than sort of saying, here's the law or here's the rule of how we should behave, um, for most people, it is helpful to detach from all electronics and screens. And uh, you just have to kind of see how that works for you. Um, I've conditioned myself that 10 minutes of sleep makes me, or 10 minutes of TV before bed makes me pretty bored. And I'm pretty well able to drop off to sleep um, pretty quickly with that. 
Okay, so now I want to talk about some of your, you know, some of your writings because I, I I love your writings, by the way. Um, tell us about the, your first book because a lot of people think, you know, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to put it on Amazon. It's going to become a bestseller, and all of a sudden I'm rich and happy. And people don't realize that when you write a book and you finally publish it, that that's when the work first begins. So what was your experience like? Writing a book is like doing an ultra marathon mentally. Um, I am proud of my book, Warrior, but I'm sick of reading it. <laughs> I am going through, as I said, my eighth or ninth pass through every single page to try and make sure it's squared away. Because for me, that's a sign of respect for the people I support is to try and submit a draft that really looks good. Um, working with, with Amazon, frankly, is, is challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, when they're good, they're really good, like that poem, right? But when you can't find people that can help you with things, I, I was pretty stuck for the last week with some stuff that came up about my ebook launch. So it looked perfect on my end, and I submitted it, and then it kind of looked messed up on some people's Kindle readers. And it was a bedeviling, frustrating challenge that took up many precious days during my book launch. So, I mean, I would say, like, don't write a book because you want to make money because you don't really make money from books generally. Mm -hmm. When you understand that, you know, um, the, the supplier gets a cut, the book doesn't make you much profit. Uh, books aren't valued at, at very much. And you can get like all of someone's best thoughts for like 20 bucks, you know, um, it's not going to make you a lot of money. So even a very successful book is, is kind of, you know, I'll, I'll take my, you know, a few thousand dollars and move to, to Mexico. It's just a kind of a ridiculous fantasy that, that I agree people have. Um, you write a book for impact. Yes. And yes. that is why I write because an, a book is a great way to scale insights inexpensively. And you can download a whole bunch of life-changing or life-saving insights for people um, and for me right now, I mean, I cut my book price from $22, which it will be $22 on May 11th to half that. So that during this pre-order period through May 11th, people can get it for 11 bucks. And then because it was the top new release in nine different categories and a bestseller for patient and physician healing, I think it got a lot of traffic and Amazon dropped it even lower to like $9.16. So that's great. And I want people to know that it's available for that, you know, deeply discounted cost because um, people can get a lot of benefit from, hopefully, and that's why I wrote it, from the insights that I learned from the warriors I've served, from the military family members that love them, that have shared with me, here's what's really going on, here's where the, the hidden pain is, and here's how we can address it. So we write, we write for scaling insights you know not for making money yep and you know i interviewed i love interviewing authors because um and i was interviewing somebody last week and they said you know i never thought about it this way and they said you know the word author is just short short for the word authority and i was like you know i never thought about that but when you do have a bush public a book published it does show that you are authority in certain in certain areas so how do we find your book? How can we get your book? And how can we get in touch with you? Thank you for asking. Um, my book is on Amazon. Now, here's the really important thing. 
Apparently my first edition continues to sell and there's inventory somewhere. And I wish I could discontinue that book, but I can't. I've tried, this is part of the frustration, to get that book down because it's no longer the book that has all the new stuff that I've added about COVID and new exercises for, for healers and patients to build a better trust. The second edition has a lot of new content. And um, that edition is going to be uh, on Amazon as well. So when you go on Amazon, you look up Warrior, Shauna Springer, you should really be careful to look for the new edition. It'll say small print, <laughs> a new edition is available here. Click on that. And through um, the 11th, it is on sale for less than 10 bucks. So now is a great time if you're going to pick up a copy or, or get it out to any organizations. My website is www.docshaunaspringer.com. So docshaunaspringer.com. And there's a lot of podcasts and interviews and articles and free stuff, um, as well as also links um, to my work there as well. So that's a good place to find me online. And I'm doing um, a lot of speaking engagements as well. If anybody needs a, a paid speaker, keynote speaker, I am open to reviewing what you want. So your book is dropping on Tuesday the 11th? The 11th. If that's a Tuesday, I'm not tracking okay. that. I'm just looking at it because I'm going to drop this episode the day before. Thank you. So I appreciate get, you know, right on that. Thank you. I appreciate that. That would be really helpful. You know, and like, you know, people know that the difference between me and other podcasters is that once we, you know, we've, well, we've already built a relationship, but once we've talked on here, you know, that's when the relationship just begins. And um, I'm all about, you know, building relationships and building uh, generational relationships. So, and, and I'm here to help you guys because you're here to help others. So the last question I ask everybody, I ask a thousand people, I get a thousand different answers. You know, mm -hmm. we live in a crazy world. You know, I live in New Jersey where we're still on lockdown. So we still have grandparents that are um, homeschooling kids. We got parents that are driving Uber just to put kids food in the kids' mouths. So if I ask an average person to do something in seven days, they're pretty much never going to get to it. But mm -hmm. if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if somebody out there, whether it be a veteran, first responder, if somebody is struggling with their mental health, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get help? If there's one theme in my book, Warrior, how to support those who protect us, it is this. When we connect, we survive. So the thing to do is to pick up the phone or if you can, be in person with somebody that you love more than you fear their judgment of you. So if you turn to those you love and trust, because that is greater than your fear or your pride, that can be life-saving. And so you need to kind of confront the problem directly with the people you trust, and that is the way through dangerous levels of crisis. Guys, well, there you heard it. Thank you, Doc, for, for coming on and hanging out. Definitely pick up her book. Like I said, I've read it twice. I'm going on my third iteration, and I can't wait to get the next episode, the next uh, book. Guys, I want to thank Soldier Girl Coffee. Um, if you guys love coffee with a mission, if you love veterans, definitely support a veteran company. 
So, Doc, I want to thank you for everything you do for our, our, our veterans and our first responders. And I'm truly grateful for you. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. You and, and like I said, I'm going to release this around around the 10th so we okay. can get, get that book rolling out. Awesome. That's really helpful. I appreciate that. Thank All right, you. Well, God bless you. Take care. All right. Bye. Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum.